Welcome to another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Mike Kresnick, and I'm here with Pastor Bob Thune of Cormdeo Church and Pastor Chris Hemmelman of First City Church. On Wednesdays, we sit down and talk about how the gospel of Jesus Christ connects the questions and issues of everyday life. And today is the third Wednesday theology. We're talking about chapter 18 of Bavink, the work of Christ and his exaltation. I love Bavink. This is a good chapter. Man. It's good. So let me let me remind you listeners where we have come from. Uh, last month on Third Wednesday Theology, I, I, I flew solo because everybody was on vacation <laughs> or something. And I, uh, I, I walked through the work of Christ in his humiliation. And what I reminded you of is that as we think about passages, especially like Philippians 2 in Scripture, uh, we read about Christ's, we read this pattern of Christ's humiliation and then his exaltation. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. And every New Testament theologian will tell you that this is a motif or a pattern in the New Testament. As the New Testament apostles look back on the work of Christ, they see in that work both humiliation, Christ coming low and descending and then exaltation, Christ being raised up and lifted up and seated on high. And so Bavink tackles these in two chapters. Chapter 17 is the work of Christ in his humiliation. And so we talked about Christ's descent and his coming low and coming near to us to save us. In this chapter, Bavink talks of the work of Christ in his exaltation. What is it that uh, Christ does and accomplishes through his exaltation um, and the victorious resurrection, especially, uh, and all that comes after the resurrection, the ascension and the sitting at the Father's right hand and, and his ongoing kingship and rule over his people. Um, I have said repeatedly, and I will keep saying it, I just wish that I had discovered Bavink earlier because it would have saved me a lot of headache. Mm-hmm. Here's one place where it would have saved me a lot of headache. And by the way, I decided I'm not going to like survey the whole chapter this month as much as the three of us are just going to talk about the things in this chapter that we liked. Some listeners are reading along with us in this book, and some of you are just sort of benefiting from our reflections. And so either way, we're glad you're on board. But Bavik in this chapter um, talks about the, so if you want to think about humiliation and exaltation, language that Bavink lays over that is the accomplishment of redemption and then Christ's applying of his redeeming work to us. So he basically says, like, if we think about the work of the cross, it's the accomplishing of atonement. And then if we think about what does Christ do now in his resurrection and his ascension and ascending of the Holy Spirit, all of that now is Christ applying to his people the benefits of his work on the cross and in his death. And so he, he sort of used that, uses that language of accomplishment and application as a, a pattern to talk about Christ's work. And one of the things, so a little history story, a little background here. When I was first sort of exploring Reformed theology, I decided to attend to be a student at Reformed Theological Seminary, mainly because I just wanted to sort of explore this tradition. I was I was intrigued by, I had not grown up in a Reformed theology, sort of grew up in a general, you know, evangelically uh, fundamentalist-y kind of a background, dispensational probably, uh, in, in the cleanest categories. And so I decided I, I want to, I want to, be exposed to this sort of reformed tradition and sort of understand how do they think and where does this come from? And so I chose to go to this seminary that, that stood in that tradition as did you Mm -hmm. for different reasons. I'm sure you probably had already 
wonderfully thought through many of your theological <laughs> convictions in a deeper way than I had when I started out. But one of the places where I got stuck in Reformed theology is the point in TULIP, that's the L. I mean, TULIP, not a lot of people don't even like the TULIP acronym, but uh, limited atonement. What, what sort of some theologians call limited atonement or particular redemption. Uh, the idea that Christ's death on the cross purchased and fully paid for the sins only of the elect and not of every single person everywhere. And that's a sticking point for many people because it feels like what we're saying is um, Christ's death is only, is only good enough to, <laughs> to sort of like save a certain number of people mm -hmm. and that we're restricting in some way the beauty and the glory and the efficacy of what Christ has done. And I spent two years of my life reading on that, wrestling through that, having conversations with people, reading guys like John Owen, because I just wanted to get back far enough where I could sort of think through, how did the old theologians talk about this? If someone would have just handed me these four pages of Bavink, <laughs> really would have helped me a lot. Uh, and here's why. Let me just read you a few sections of how Bavink speaks of the atoning work of Jesus Christ, and then how that work is applied to the people of God. And I think what you will see is the beautiful way that Bavink speaks of the universality and whole world nature of Christ's atoning work, and also the particularity of it. So let me read a few sections. And I, if I seriously, if I would have just had these two pages and could have just sat with these and gone, oh, yeah, this makes sense it would have really helped me, <laughs> uh, saved me two years of uh, painful study and wrestling through things, which was probably good for me, so it's fine. I mean, reading Owen is a lot. Yeah. He's great, but it's a lot. Yes. Bovink's a lot easier. Yes, thank you for saying that. All right, here's Bovink, page 341. The perfect sacrifice which Christ accomplished on the cross is of infinite power and worth, abundantly adequate for the reconciliation of the sins of the whole world. The Holy Scripture always relates that whole world to the redemption and recreation. The world was the object of God's love. Christ came into the world not to condemn the world, but to save it. In him, God reconciled the world, all things in heaven and on earth, to himself. He goes on to quote a number of Scripture passages related to that same theme. Next paragraph. Because of this abundant adequacy of Christ's sacrifice for the whole world, the gospel of reconciliation must also be preached to all creatures. The promise of the gospel is that whoever believes in the crucified Christ shall not perish but have eternal life. And this gospel must be proclaimed and presented without distinction to all nations and people to whom God, according to his good pleasure, sends the gospel. It must be accompanied by the imperative of repentance and belief. Scripture does not leave the least doubt about this. In the Old Testament, it is said that the Lord has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but in his repentance and life, Ezekiel 18.23 and 33.11. There it is further said that all nations shall sometimes share in the blessings of Israel. The missionary idea is already contained in the promise of the Old Testament covenant of grace, but is expressed with crystal clarity when Christ himself appears on the, world, on the earth and has accomplished his work. He is the light of the world, the Savior who gives life to the world, who has other sheep besides Israel, which he must also bring. He therefore predicts and commands that the gospel will be preached to the whole world. Now, gets better. Page 342. This universality of the preaching of the gospel 
has advantages for the world in its entirety and for those who will never believe in Christ as their Savior. And he goes on to enumerate why it's good news for everyone that the gospel is preached everywhere, even if they don't trust in Christ. He says, by this call to repentance and faith, which Christ gives out to all who live under the gospel, he gives many external blessings in home and society, in church and state, and those too enjoy these who do not in their own hearts hear that gospel. They lie within the domain of the word and are protected from terrible sins and in distinction from the pagan nations share in many external privileges. Moreover, we may not forget that Christ by his passion and death achieved the emancipation of the creature from the bondage of corruption, the renewal of heaven and earth, the restitution and mutual reconciliation of all things, also of angels and of men in Christ, the organism of the human race, the world as the creation of God is preserved and restored. So I just want you to capture the vastness of how he's talking about the work that Christ has accomplished, the proclamation of the gospel, the fact that it's to go everywhere to everyone, that every person is to be invited to believe and repent and trust in Christ, and that the benefits of what Christ purchased has have advantages even for people who will never believe in Christ and who are rebellious against Christ. Nevertheless, they benefit from the death of Christ. Is he describing common grace here? Or is it something more nuanced than that? That's a great question. Chris, how would you answer that? I guess both in the sense that <clears throat> the the benefits, the the broader benefits, like we talk about gospel renewal, right? When when the gospel renews people, homes, families, that impact begins to spread through cities. And, and so, yeah. he, there, so there's a sense in which the redeemed benefit the the world at large, which, you know, I think there's, yeah, there's saving grace there, but there's also kind of a common grace overflow there. So he is, he is talking more broadly in that sense. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but then he's getting into, Hey, the cosmic scope of yeah. Christ's redemption shows think big, mm -hmm. even though we're talking about a limited atonement or, you know, particular atonement. Yeah. Still don't lose sight of this cosmic scope of redemption. All right, next paragraph. However much we must hold to this absolute universality of the preaching of the gospel and the offer of grace, we are not to infer from it that therefore the benefits of Christ were achieved and destined for every individual person. This is conclusively denied already by the fact that in the days of the Old Testament, God let the heathen go in their own ways and chose only the people of Israel as his own. It is denied also by the fact that in the fullness of time, notwithstanding the universality in principle of the gospel preaching, he limited the promises of grace throughout the centuries to a small portion of mankind. The moment scripture enters into the question for whom Christ achieved his benefits, to whom he grants them and applies them, and who, as a matter of fact, therefore share in them, it always relates his work to the church. Just as in the Old Testament, there was a special people whom God chose to be his heir, so this thought of a special people of God continues to live on in the New Testament. The New Testament people are no longer limited to the fleshly descendants of Abraham. Now, on the contrary, it is made up of Jews and Gentiles and out of all nations and groups of people. But this church of the New Testament is now properly the gathering of the people of God. It is the New Testament Israel, the true seed of Abraham. For this people, Christ poured out his blood and achieved salvation. The, the way that Bavinkter holds together the universality of the preaching of the gospel and the reality that only Christ's people receive the benefits of his atoning work 
is a beautiful thing. And it's the thing that, <laughs> that I, until I read enough theology, I just couldn't hold those two things together in a meaningful way. And yet Bavink does it in four pages. It would have made me less restless yeah. and reformed. <laughs> That's right. It just would have made me public reformed. Just reformed well, and chilled, chilled out. And on page 344, he, he uses this analogy, because sometimes you hear people say this. Christ did not come to achieve the possibility of salvation for us all, and then to leave to our free will the question of whether or not we would take advantage of the possibility. Instead, he humiliated himself and became obedient even to the death on the cross in order really, perfectly, and eternally to save us. Well, if you put it that way, how can you argue against it? Yeah. That's, that's just... I mean, yeah. the, the, his point is that as the scriptures speak of what Christ accomplished... It does not speak as though all Christ has done is to make salvation possible, but that Christ has actually accomplished our salvation. He has actually purchased us and saved us and called us to himself. And that distinction between making salvation possible and making it actual is a key distinction theologically and, um, and beautiful. But, but I think where I got stuck as a young, as a young theologian is that it, it, it feels as though I think there's a, there's a way that people logically connect dots and end up in a place where it's like, well, you know, how can we preach the gospel to everyone if not everyone is going to repent and trust in Christ? And it, people just get lost in this sort of theological cul-de-sac. And what Bavink, as always, does well is he's just a, a biblical theologian. So he's just, he's gathering all the biblical data, holding it all together beautifully and saying, yes, we can hold together this this free universal offer of the gospel and the particularity of the redemption of Christ. And he makes an important statement on 343, where he says, as many as are chosen of the Father are purchased by the Son, and through the Spirit they are reborn and renewed. The Holy Scriptures tell us plainly, very plainly, that these are many, very many. Scripture teaches us this not in order that we should be, we should with our defective insight and arbitrary norm limit and curtail this number, but in order that in the midst of struggle and apostasy, we should firmly be assured that from the beginning to end of salvation is the work of God, and that therefore this work will be continued despite all opposition. I, I love where then he then takes it as one, this, this truth of limited atonement doesn't mean we get to artificially limit the number. Yeah. It's like you, you, this is, this is a work of God and it is big and it is glorious. And scripture talks about, you know, countless, but then the other piece of this, which I think often gets missed in this conversation about things like predestination and limited atonement, this word is for our encouragement Yeah. that, Hey, you're going to face opposition. It's going to seem like people are walking away from the faith left and right. And I mean, right now in our culture, I mean, I think that's something we could feel in some ways, but this word is to say, no, God has people he has chosen. They will get saved. Christ is going to accomplish that. He has people that he has you know, purchased to accomplish this redemption. And we should take great hope in that. And so, uh, I, I love how, you know, Bobbing brings us back to the whole point of scripture, revealing this to us is to give us hope. And puts all the glory on Christ yeah. and on yep. the, the the majesty of what Christ has done in his exaltation. Because remember, what he's saying to us is in in the work of Christ, in his resurrection and ascension, uh, and his sitting at the right hand of God, and his sending of the Holy Spirit, and his now ruling as king over the church, what Christ is doing now is gathering his people, is sending forth his gospel to the nations and drawing people to himself. Now... Now we get to talk about the place where I disagree with Bavink. And where Chris agrees with Bavink. Yeah, like, and therefore where Chris and I disagree. All I have to say is Bavink, Bavink agrees with me. Conversation's <laughs> over, right? 
I, no, no, definitely <laughs> no, not. Fuck. No. Uh, it's where Bob, so on page 345, Bobink tackles that phrase we say in the Apostles' Creed uh, about Christ's descent into hell. Uh, or as we say it, he descended to the dead. Um, the uh, he's, Here's what he says. According to the Reformed Confession, the exaltation of Christ began with his resurrection. But according to many other confessions, it began earlier, namely with the descent into hell. This descent is very differently interpreted. He's going to review us for us now the interpretations. The Greek church takes it to mean that Christ, with his divine nature and his human soul, went into the underworld in order to liberate the souls of the saintly forefathers and to bring these to paradise. According to the Roman Catholic Church, Christ actually with his soul descended into the underworld and remained there so long as his body rested in the grave in order to emancipate the souls of the saints which were remaining there without suffering until salvation had been achieved. The Lutheran Church makes a distinction between the actual quickening of Christ and his resurrection and teaches that in the short interval between these two, Christ in both soul and body descended into hell in order there to announce his victory to the devils and to the condemned. And many theologians in modern times hold that Christ before his resurrection, whether in soul alone or in body, also went to the underworld to preach the gospel to those who died in their sins and to give them the opportunity to repent and believe. The wide, now, new paragraph, the wide difference of opinion in this matter proves that the original meaning of the words descended into hell has been lost. <laughs> He's like, you guys all don't even know what you're talking about. Uh, the Reformed Church, accordingly, has abandoned this interpretation of the creedal article and has interpreted it to refer either to the hellish pains and agonies which Christ suffered before his death or to the state of death in which Christ was while his body lay in the grave. That is the classic Reformed interpretation. It is Calvin's interpretation and Bovink's interpretation. It is not Bob Thune's interpretation. <laughs> Bob Thune agrees with the Greeks and the Roman Catholics. So this I have, is, I have a much wider tradition of the church in agreement yeah. with me. Oh. But this is okay. this is where your your Roman Catholic uh, affin- I don't know affinity is not the right term. It's definitely not affinity. Yeah, yeah. It's your. Uh, but I don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Let's just your, say it that way. Your larger reading in the larger church tradition, That's church right. history shows. That's right. In unique ways. Sometimes. It is true. It is true. Uh, like I do, Ash Wednesday too. Like yes, like Ash Wednesday. Okay, all right. <laughs> Sorry, Mike. Um, so you you agree with Bobbing that in the, that the when the creed says he descended to hell, what what was intended there is the Christ suffering on the cross. That that this is a hellish moment. His descent yeah. is in his actual death. Yeah, and okay. and I think a lot of that. I mean, there's multiple reasons, but I I think one is it draws a lot on certain language in certain interpretations of scripture, and yep. that those words are best understood when, when the word hell is used best understood as to the dead. Yes. Yes. I agree with that. I think the word hell does not mean a place of punishment as we often think it does. It certainly means the grave or Sheol. The two key texts here are Ephesians four verse nine and first Peter three, 19 through 21. Bavink mentions both of those texts. Those are the two texts in the New Testament that speak of the descent of Christ and that, that open up this whole category of questions of like, where is he? So Chris, Chris, my question for you is simply, so where was Jesus's soul during the three days that he was in the grave? Well, he told you. Well, he told the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. There you go. Okay, where's paradise? Not in the ground. <laughs> <laughs> Not down. <laughs> is it the same as heaven or at the Father's right hand or is it someplace different? I'd say in the presence of God, yes. Mm. Not necessarily. I mean, the father's right. That that language is. I mean, there's a particular, you know, resurrection, ascension, like that. That is very much 
um, a movement of accomplishment within his office, all right, those right, things. Right. So yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm not saying it's the same yep, thing, but yep. yeah, I would say in the presence of God. Yes. Okay. So you just think par- he's in paradise, wherever that is. Wherever that is. Yes. And you don't really know where that is. You're not going <laughs> mean, to, I'm not assuming gonna, <laughs> with God. You're, you're not going to agree with me that that's actually just Sheol. No, I don't think so. The place of the grave, but for those who depart in faith. So, I know we've talked about this before. Yeah, so this is numerous podcasts. <laughs> this is yes. We, do we we have this fight often? Uh, yes. Well, yeah, oh, man. We'll so, link them in the show notes. Oh, so like, you. is it? We've is talked about this before. Paradise is that place where like there's a chasm between that and hell, and you can see across it. And well, I think that's a parable. So let's not <laughs> okay. Take, let's not take so that to clarify too that spatially, one. Yeah, but I want to clarify that one. So so paradise is a place not heaven, right? Different. But is a place of. But not a place of, of torment or but it would be a place of separation where the righteous go essentially yeah. like, okay. So a sort of pre heaven, I would say lack yeah, of a better term. The, the, the simple way to say my point of view is that Christ after his death turned Sheol into paradise, that there were that those who had trusted in God and in his promises who had passed before the coming of Christ were in Sheol in the grave in the place of the dead. And paradise is now, Christ has now escorted them into the presence of God in some meaningful way that, that did not exist before then. So there's two places, essentially, two places essentially where souls rest. Yeah, sort of. And, and that's where there's like a, there's like a, a final state. Like I think when we talk about heaven and hell, we're talking about a final state mm-hmm. and that that state is yet to come. So, so after Christ, the souls of saints that depart. Yeah. Are they now in the presence of God? Yeah, Revelation. Yeah, the souls of the martyrs crying out. Okay. Yeah. So, and that was instituted with Christ. Yeah, I so, think that, yeah. I think, so Christ so I think that brought puts, into yeah. a... And the reason I like that view is because I think it puts greater emphasis on everything that Christ accomplished. Like that the whole, the whole of the salvation of the people of God rests in the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ. Mm-hmm. That this was the pivotal moment that, sh- that cha- the way I, when I preached on this, I said that cha- it changed the, gra- the geography of heaven. Yeah. I like, I like that. The, the power of that, yeah, change, yeah. change the geography of the cosmos. I mean, that is certainly orthodox. <laughs> see, I like certainly that. has. You're not going to cast me out as a heretic. I appreciate that. It's certainly. I see how you you know put the pieces together. I just don't think it makes the best sense of the pieces. And it's clearly, neither does Bobic. Yeah, he <laughs> and both he and you are smarter or than me. And I'm Calvin <laughs> or Calvin <laughs> or however the well the Luther Greek Luther agrees with you. Yeah, yeah Luther. You. Yeah, yeah. See. Although Luther thinks he was preaching to the devils, and yeah, just <laughs> throwing down, yeah. throwing down. <laughs> Luther throwing down is like Jesus condemned. was fighting all the time. Jesus was just talking smack to the devils. The devils were in the sinner's pew. That's right. Yes. He was yelling at him. Um, so uh, there's actually something in here I kind of disagree with Bobbing too. Oh, or wow. at least I I disagree with some of the way he frames it. I like it. Let's hear it. So, and and you alluded to it earlier this distinction he makes between Christ accomplishing and applying. Yeah. And I see what he's doing, but I don't know if I agree with his exact formulation. So on page 344, it talks about the importance of the resurrection in Christ in the application of, of our salvation. And he writes, but the achievement of salvation must be distinguished from the application and distribution of it. These are quite as necessary as the first. What good would a treasure of valuables do us if it remained always beyond our reach and was never put into our possession? What good would a Christ do us who had died indeed for our sins, but had never been resurrected for our justification? What would be the advantage of a Lord who had died and who had not been exalted to the father's right hand? 
So I think what he is trying, he's making a distinction between Christ's death and what that accomplished and what his resurrection accomplished. And that if Christ was, and I could be reading him wrong, but so help me out here. But so I think he's essentially saying if Christ would have died, that would have paid for our sins, but it wouldn't have been applied. So it would almost be like this. Yeah. I don't think he's saying that. I, th- I see why you're why you're hearing that because yeah. he, because in those qu- in those hypothetical questions, those rhetorical questions, he asked, "What good would a Christ do us who had died for our sins, but who had never been raised for our justification?" But what I think he's doing there is just van- it's like a musician playing a blues riff. He's just vamping on that text in the scriptures where it says Christ was died for our sins and was raised for our justification. I think okay. he's just sort gotcha. of like vamping on, "Hey, the scriptures okay. hold these two things together." I, I see how you could say, like, is he saying that Christ could have died for our sins and yet not been raised for our justification? Yeah, and it would just sort of been sort of this thing happened, but we just never experienced the blessing, but it sort of happened in this objective, abstract world. Because then he goes on to talk about the importance of the resurrection to our faith. And and so that, yeah, that distinction um, felt a little weird to me because Paul says if Christ isn't raised, then our right. faith is in vain. And so it's like, no, resurrection had to happen for salvation to happen, his death. And, and I think he, why, why that's the case, and he points out later, is because the resurrection showed that Christ actually was the righteous one. God accepted the payment, you know, all of that, that that, yes. that was necessary. So, okay, that's helpful. That's and I helpful. think, uh, I think Bavink here, uh, as many theologians do, is just, is trying to draw distinctions for our mind. But I don't think he would ever say we can separate the death and resurrection yeah, yeah, of Christ. I mean, he's yeah. saying these things hold together, but scripture does seem to, when it speaks of forgiveness and atonement, seems to focus on the cross mm-hmm. and on the blood yep. of Christ. And when it speaks of victory and kingship and authority, seems to focus yeah. on the resurrection. And so I think he's just trying to say, if we can distinguish between these two things. At the end of the day, this is one work of Christ. Yeah, yeah. But it's helpful sometimes to think about them. That's good. I agree that we want, don't want to separate those things too too clearly. Um, what what Bavink in beautiful ways, and by the way, if you're... If you're not reading along, you should be, because every time I read a chapter for this podcast, I just come away just feeling really worshipful. Like, man, Christ is so good, and the gospel is such good news. And that has a lot to do with just the ways that Bavink writes and how he uh, meanders through all the various aspects of this. Um, But he talks about, you know, when we talk about the exaltation of Christ, the work of Christ is exaltation, we're talking about resurrection, victory over the grave and over Satan and over death. We're talking about ascension, his ascension into heaven. And I like this phrase on page 354, Christ's ascension is a triumph in an even stronger sense than the resurrection. In his ascension, he triumphs over the whole earth, over all the laws of nature, over the gravity of matter. What's more, his ascension is a triumph over all the hostile, diabolical, and human forces which were robbed by God of their armor in the cross of Christ, were exhibited in, the, in their helplessness and bound to Christ's chariot of victory. I just, I just love that. Yeah. He's triumphing over gravity, man. That's a big deal. Jesus is, Jesus is powerful over gravity. That's what he just, he ascended. Yeah. And, and what's great is his emphasis on the ascension, which often doesn't get yes. a lot of emphasis in theology or in preaching and application of our salvation. And then he moves on to talk about the seating of Christ at God's right hand. And he, he doesn't make, you know, he says like some people want to make much of like Christ sitting down or whatever. But the, the point is that, that just, he has this, uh, 
I can't find the page number, but this um, example where he says, just like Solomon honored his mother by seating her at his right hand, this is what the father has done with Christ. He's, he's honored him and given him power and authority now to continue to carry forward the work of his kingdom in the world. And then what he does at the end of the chapter is he works through the offices of prophet, priest, and king again, and says that Christ is still inhabiting these offices now at the right hand of God. He's not ceased being a prophet. He still is one. He's not ceased being a priest. He still is one. He's not ceased being a king. He still is one. Uh, he's, he's fulfilling these offices now from heaven at the right hand of the father. Um, I want to find the one where he talks about Christ interceding for us because it was a really, um, a really wonderful thing because sometimes, you know, there's this passage in Hebrews and you've probably heard it preached on before where it says that Christ is interceding for us. And, um, uh, here's what, uh, here's what Bavink writes. We are not to understand this as though Christ were lying before the father, beseeching and imploring him to show mercy for the father himself loves us and gave us his son as evidence of this love. But the intercession of Christ does imply that this love of the father is never granted us except in the son who has become obedient unto the death of the cross. This intercession of Christ is not therefore a beseeching of grace, but the expression of a powerful will. The request of the son that the heathen be given him as his inheritance and the ends of the earth as his possession. Psalm 2 verse 8. It is the crucified and glorified Christ, the own son of the father, who was obedient, but who also was exalted on the throne of majesty. It is the merciful and faithful high priest who was sanctified and perfected this service in heaven and through whom the intercession of the father is presented. I just like that he's saying, like, it's, not, it's not like Jesus is saying, God, please, please. He's, it's, it's more of a declaration of like, Father, give me my inheritance. Give me the people that you've promised me. Put the nations under my feet. It's this, this kingly kind of intercession that's, a, that's just a beautiful way to think about what that text means. Oh, here we go. go. Here we go. Yeah. That's the way. Hey, this actually does bring up, we had a listener write in, uh, happens to be a a part of Quorum Deo. There's a, there's a profession of faith we use here that talks about, uh, what is the gospel is the question. And and there's a little catechesis kind of answer. And the gospel is the good news of Christ's death, resurrected. you know, Christ died for our sins, was buried, resurrected. And this listener said, Hey, when we do the apostles creed, we talk about Christ ascending to the dead, him ascending from, you know, ascending to the, the father's right hand. How come in this one profession, we just say resurrection and we don't talk about the ascension and we don't talk about his exaltation to the right hand of the father. Um, that's an interesting question. And I like when people are in- attentive enough to the liturgy that they notice theological things that seem to be missing. So that's a good listener question. Um, my answer to that, maybe, maybe Bob Mc wouldn't like my answer, but since I wrote that profession that we use, uh, my answer to that is that in theological shorthand, mm. when we speak of the resurrection, we're implying also all of that. In the same way that when Bavink titles this chapter, the work of Christ in his exaltation, he's capturing a bunch of things in that category of exaltation. And in, in theological shorthand, when we speak of Christ's death and resurrection, those are the two simplest categories by which we're capturing both his active obedience on earth, all the things he did to be obedient to the father, even to the point of death. And in resurrection, we also mean to capture the work of ascension and the ongoing mediation of Christ before the Father. So it's not that we're leaving that out. It's that we're capturing that in the idea of resurrection. And this is even in Scripture. I mean, when Paul talks about Christ dying, he doesn't always say and resurrected, but it's 
shorthand for the whole thing. Yes. Like death and resurrection. Yes. So uh, Bavink ends the chapter by reminding us that um, Christ is coming again. And uh, that in his, uh, this is really fascinating. He, one of the things I love about the reformed writers um, is that they are so careful to connect everything to Christ, meaning there's no benefit we experience that is not purchased through the death and resurrection of Christ. It all, it is all ours in and through the work of Jesus. And so one of the questions Bovink sort of reflects on at the end of this chapter is, how is that true even of God's judgment? How is it true that even the final judgment of God comes through Christ? Listen to the close of this chapter. Just as the church is redeemed in the way of justice, so the enemies of Christ will someday be condemned in the way of justice. If God were to pursue his enemies with his omnipotence, they would not for a moment be able to exist. But he lets them be born and he lets them live generation after generation, century after century. He showers his benefits upon them and grants them all those gifts which they possess in soul and body, but which they, on their part, abuse by employing them against him. God can do this, and he does do it, because Christ is mediator. Even though now not all things are yet subjected to him, he is nevertheless crowned with honor and glory, and he will reign as king until his enemies will have subjected themselves to him. Finally, at the end of times, when the whole history of the world and that of each individual person will have ended, everyone will in his own conscience have to agree with Christ on seeing all that God, for the sake of the mediator, has given in the way of spiritual and material gifts. Willingly or unwillingly, every knee will sometime bow to him, and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, Philippians 2, 10, and 11. And one day, as the Son of Man, Christ will pronounce the final judgment over every creature, and he shall condemn none, save those who in their own conscience, convicted by the Holy Spirit, are condemned already. I love that conclusion where he says, Christ is going to condemn none except those who in their own conscience, convicted by the Holy Spirit, are condemned already. He's getting after that same idea that Paul says in Romans 2, that everyone has the law of God already written on their heart and their conscience is already bearing witness to them. Uh, and, and so really all Christ is doing in the end is condemning the people who, though they know that Christ is Lord, have refused to bow the knee to him. Um, it's, I, I just like that line of, you know, if God were to pursue his enemies with omnipotence, they, wouldn't, they, they would obviously be annihilated. They would not exist. So he does not pursue them with his omnipotence. He pursues them through, he allows them to continue this because Christ is mediator. So there's a way in which the mediating work of Christ even is good news for those who are condemned because it's, it's that, back to that idea of common grace. It's the reason that they um, enjoy many of the good gifts um, that, that we enjoy in life and in the world. Um, so any closing thoughts, Chris, the work of Christ and his exaltation to uh, reiterate that point that you make Bob about the, how the reformers are constantly bringing us back to Christ and how every benefit that we have is grounded and rooted in Christ. Uh, Bobbing does a massive masterful job of sort of pointing to how each piece of Christ's exaltation sort of gives us the benefits of of what he's accomplished. And I, and I love 
as one example, you know, when he talks about the resurrection of Christ and how in Christ's resurrection, there's a sense in which he, he himself is being justified before the eyes of the world in the sense that he is condemned as a criminal. Uh, he stands in our place of, of sin. Uh, the world just sees him, you know, strung upon a cross, shameful. Uh, he makes this point that in, in Christ's death through the eyes of the world, he was this condemned sinner worthy of death. But in his resurrection, God shows that it's flipped, that he is the son of glory. He is, he is righteous. He is, uh, he is good. He is, you know, all those things. And so there's a sense where Christ experiences justification and that in the resurrection of Christ and his justification, we experience justification. And I think it's just a great example to show that our salvation is not an abstract sort of theological thing, but it very much is Christ sharing of his very self. And that, that salvation and this, I think, you know, union with Christ, when we're united with Christ, we're getting Christ. And that the justification that we have through his resurrection is a justification that he himself experienced in a sense, not, not exactly in the sense that we do, but there is a real sense in which we are getting a, a real benefit from Christ that he himself has accomplished and purchased. And Bavink, like the best of the Reformed writers, is so Christ-centered, it just, it just holds up how our salvation is this beautiful union with Jesus, how intimate and how close it is. And not a lot of writers will, will speak of salvation in this way. It, it just it can be so transactional in a yeah. sense. And so I, I again, one of the, if, if you don't read any other chapter in this, read this chapter. And if you don't come away with a deeper appreciation of what Jesus has accomplished for us and what the Father sent Jesus to do, then, um, I don't know, check your pulse. Because <laughs> it, it really is beautiful. The goal of this podcast is to equip our own church for discipleship and mission. So if you're a Christian or church leader in another context, we thank you for listening in. And we pray that this conversation might be helpful to you as you minister in your context. We always love to hear from you, the listeners. So if you have thoughts, questions, or future podcast topic ideas, send us an email, podcast at cdomaha.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again next time on the Wednesday Conversation. <laughs>